Francisco Portland appreciates its partnership with the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association in presenting their inaugural podcasts, Boiled Down. Cisco strives to be our customer's most valued and trusted business partner by delivering great products with exceptional service. Welcome, everyone, to Orla's Boiled Down podcast. My name is Greg Astley. I'm your host. And today, I'd like to welcome Bill Perry from Balance Point Strategies. Bill is also the chief lobbyist for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And joining us as well is Jason Brandt, president and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about our legislative agenda for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association and some of the key issues that will be coming up. Um, we would like to remind everyone to email us your thoughts, questions, uh, and if you have any future topic requests, to info at OregonRLA.org. Uh, again, info at OregonRLA.org, and that's any uh, topics that you may want us to talk about or if you have any questions uh, or thoughts about what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into the legislative agenda, though, we'd like to go over our advocacy watch. Uh, those are a way for us to keep a pulse on what's going on, uh, government issues, and let you know about them. So, for example, uh, at the federal level, our tip pooling case uh, has now been submitted to the U.S. Supreme Court. We are waiting to hear whether or not they're going to take that on. Uh, but the National Restaurant Association's Law Center is championing that for us, and uh, we hope to hear something in the near future. On the lodging side, uh, we continue to see some of the uh, lodging tax creep in a couple of different cities. Uh, Hillsborough and Forest Grove are both considering enacting lodging taxes. And I know that uh, both Jason and I have had a, a couple of meetings uh, with some folks in those um, areas, mayors and city managers, as well as uh, there was a group, Jason, in Hillsborough that met recently to talk about the, uh, the tax. Can you uh, talk about that just briefly? Sure. Yeah, that's, uh, we really appreciate it when local municipalities engage the lodging operators in the community. It's, it's really the first step in and really having dialogue that can be constructive, uh, it's it's a it's paramount really that the lodging operators buy into any increase in the lodging tax. After all, the lodging taxes predominantly go towards, uh, frankly, uh, ideas or investments that create a return on investment for those lodging operators. So if they don't buy into the increase, then there's probably a problem with what the money is being planned to be spent on. So the lodging operators being there is big. In the case of Hillsborough, we're talking about a new event facility that has the potential to increase heads and beds. And really the discussions revolve around what type of added amenities could be included in a facility they're already planning on building with or without the lodging tax increase. So the question is, do the lodging operators in Hillsborough want to increase it to have some of those add-on amenities that could result in higher levels of heads and beds in the community. And we saw a great example of that recently in Seaside where they uh, had a lodging tax increase, a small one in the city that uh, is going to result in an expansion of their convention center, which will uh, mean bigger conventions and, like you said, more heads and beds, which means ultimately more lodging tax revenue and more folks that will be staying in the hotels and motels uh, and lodging operators on the coast. Yeah, that's right. In Seaside, a lot of the lo larger lodging operators were somewhat supportive of the tax, ended up in, coming alongside the city because it was an expansion of the facility that they had already seen a direct return on investment from. So invest more investment in the same, in their opinion, out and for that community was the right decision. It gives them the opportunity to draw larger conferences and events as well for the future, which I know the lodging operators there really appreciate. Well, speaking of uh, lodging tax, one of the big issues in Portland right now, of course, is short-term rentals uh, companies that uh, rent out um, whole houses, for example, are creating problems for housing affordability and availability. And uh, we've been on top of this with our new Portland Lodging Alliance, our group of uh, lodging operators in the Portland area, uh, who have been working hard to make sure that the elected officials up in Portland know about uh, why that's not a good idea to let uh, companies like Airbnb and Vacasa kind of slide by on some of the regulations that they need to be following. Uh, we've had some great meetings recently with uh, Commissioner Fish and uh, Commissioner Udaley's offices and uh, have some upcoming meetings, I know, with uh, Mayor Wheeler. So, Jason, is there anything you want to add to the short-term rental conversation? 
Well, I think Airbnb, uh, since Greg, you mentioned them earlier, is to be commended for adopting a policy of one place, one host in Portland. And we really like to see that type of uh, momentum being built in Portland, and we think it's the right thing to do. The challenge, however, is that we don't feel that goes far enough. One place, one host is fine, but we're still talking about self-policing, which is an issue, and we need to make sure that the city's auditor's office has the data to know if that, in fact, is being upheld as as a rule, uh, and there aren't exceptions to the rule within Airbnb or any other online platforms for that matter. So really our goal with short-term rental regulation in Portland is to make sure we're really cracking down on those commercial operators uh, that are operating like illegal hotels in Portland. So we have to stay on top of that. Our members expect it. The affordable housing community, which we greatly respect in Portland, expects it. So this is an opportunity for us all to do the right thing whether we're working at Airbnb or somewhere else in the community. Right. So before we drive into the uh, the legislative topics here, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, we do have our legislative reception, Taste Oregon, coming up on February 28th. It'll be from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Salem Convention Center. Um, probably the most highly anticipated legislative reception uh, in Salem. Um, and uh, we also want you to tell us what's happening in your area so we can know what's going on. Um, you're our boots on the ground, our ears, and you can contact us uh, here, info at oregonrla.org, or get in touch with your member rep in the area. Well, with that, uh, we want to get right into the topic of the day, which is uh, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's uh, legislative agenda and some of the top issues. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've got our guest today, Bill Perry from Balance Point Strategies. Uh, and you can reach Bill at balancepointstrategies.com. Uh, Jason Brandt is also here, and Jason can be reached at jbrandt at oregonrla.org. Uh, again, welcome both of you. Thank you for being here. Uh, Bill, I'm sure we could fill this podcast with stories from legislative sessions and uh, some of the battles that you've had down there. Um, but maybe just give us a, a brief background on uh, how you've you know, worked with the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association in the past and, and some of your history with the legislature. Uh, well, again, yeah, I've been uh, representing the industry for now almost 20 years, and uh, it uh, doesn't seem like it's been that, that long just because it's met a lot of people over the time. But it is um, really interesting to see how far this or this organization and industry really reaches out and, and affects uh, issues. As Jason's going to get into some of the specific issues, you, you really look at the stuff that we look at, and it's tourism promotion. It's how do we get people to move around the state. And there's big issues you always see, but we've always been involved in some of the things like university sports, as weird as that sounds. There's a lottery fund that helps uh, fund those athletics, and they're about 40% of the smaller universities' budgets. But you know, the softball teams, the baseball teams, they all travel around the state. It gets good exposure around the state. Yesterday, we were working with state parks to make sure that they have the funding to make sure that people are going to state parks, have good experiences. Once again, spreads people around the state. We do work with the film and video tax credits uh, because that brings different operations to Oregon. Those are all, you know, kind of little things that fly under the radar but are very important to the industry. Um, also, you, you look at our expansive, you know, how do we develop a workforce uh, as we're moving forward? We've been very active in building the Cascades campus and getting a hospitality school back in, in Oregon, uh, in the Bend area. We've, you know, been active on the immigration front to make sure that, you know, we have a constant workforce. So even though a lot of these issues aren't the front page issue, uh, you know, workforce, economic development, that's really what matters to the industry. And so our, our net gets cast very far, and there's always the big issues that show up in the newspaper, but there's also a lot of little things because we've been so active as an organization that we're big players in, and people expect us to kind of really work on down at the legislature. So Great. Thanks, Bill. Uh, speaking of the big issues, Jason, maybe you can kind of go over for us what the what the focus is for the legislative agenda for Orla uh, this, this session. Sure. Yeah, I, it really comes down to four buckets, if you will, uh, four buckets of activity that I think we really have to focus in on. Uh, the first being uh, some type of wage solution, and we feel it's a, a very progressive solution that 
that could float uh, given the current dynamics of the legislature. We call it income equality, and really the concept is to create a solution for our table service restaurants when it comes to balancing out wages between the front of the house and back of the house. We're trying to look at solutions that provide for protection for those that are hourly employees in the front of the house to continue making the minimum wage they're currently receiving, uh, if not a little bit more money, come July 1st. But to cap that hourly wage at $10 if they are making $5 or more in tip income beyond that minimum wage rate. And that, in turn, would allow for more balancing in the back of the house. So we really feel, especially when you look at the history of the industry, that uh, wages have flip-flopped, whereby the back of the house was making more than the front of the house decades ago. And now we have a situation where the front of the house is making two and a half to three times as much as the back of the house in the table service restaurant uh, structure. So we are very interested in that. We feel that it's a very bipartisan concept. And so we hope to have more conversations uh, with our legislators about that concept. So that would be bucket one. Bucket two has to do with increasing regulations on top of the regulations that have already passed in the last two sessions. So we already have our members across the board, whether we're talking lodging or the various restaurant structures out there dealing with paid sick leave and minimum wage increases. We have members across the board that are still trying to adapt to these new circumstances, this new environment. And we really have to be careful about passing additional regulations on top of the ones we've already passed especially so soon after these have just passed. And one of the concerns we have is something called restrictive scheduling, this concept that uh, you have to provide your schedule uh, two weeks in advance to all of your employees, and if you change that schedule as those uh, shifts come up on, on the schedule, then you either have to pay more money uh, because you took a schedule, a shift away from an employee, or you have to pay more money because you asked someone to come into work when they weren't previously scheduled. It gets a little complex, but the real issue there and why it matters to our members is the fact that it creates more regulation, more paperwork, more time spent by someone to document all of these, these shifts and making sure people received schedules uh, at certain times and when they were changed due to weather or all these other situations that we just can't control. Uh, it's a real it's a real cluster that we have deep concerns with. And in the communities where this concept has passed, restrictive scheduling, um, there isn't enough information yet to know if it actually is working and benefiting the very workers that uh, we think maybe some legislators are trying to help. We, we just know so much about the industry. We know that this is not the solution that I think they're, they're searching for. But in, in communities like San Francisco and Seattle, uh, where this concept passed, they just don't have enough information. In Seattle, it hasn't even been implemented yet. It doesn't start until July 1st of 17. So there's still so much to learn before uh, we go out on this frontier and, and experiment with real lives and real people. So uh, we have deep concerns about it, and we just like to see us back off a little bit and not be on the bleeding edge. It's okay if we want to be on the cutting edge, but if we pass this right now, we're on the bleeding edge. Sure. The third bucket would be transportation. You know, we really have a, a very, very big need for a comprehensive transportation package. Uh, and this is something that benefits all areas of our state. And uh, one of the things we pride ourselves on here at Orla is, is making sure we do have full comprehensive representation of what those infrastructure needs are in all areas of the state, whether we're talking about Highway 101 on the coast, uh, for tourism there, or whether we're talking about Eastern Oregon and I-84 and maybe needing more uh, financing to, to make sure that we're uh, appropriately treating the roads so that we don't have to close down I-84 as much as we have been between Pendleton and Ontario. And the list goes on for other areas of the state. But comprehensive transportation funding is absolutely vital to a robust tourism economy in Oregon. And then the fourth uh, bucket, which uh, relates to the third bucket, would be to, uh, tourism and just the protection of local transit lodging taxes. We know that local transit lodging taxes and some of the borders we've put around that in previous legislative sessions have worked uh, quite successfully in drawing more tourists to Oregon. Remember, we call tourism an export economy because these are dollars coming in from outside the state that otherwise would not come here. So we literally are sending dollars out in advertising 
to bring more dollars back that are being spent in our lodging establishments and in our restaurants. And due to the nature of our budget situation in hundreds of cities across Oregon uh, that have to balance their budgets, we see the local transit lodging tax being a a piece of low-hanging fruit in some situations where where they see how successful the lodging industry has been and they and they go gosh well why don't we just uh, tweak that that ratio a little bit and maybe pull some of that lodging tax revenue in to help with our our general fund challenges over here and the reality is you could do that but you're simply putting a a band-aid on a a major gash wound that needs stitches and maybe an overnight stay in the hospital it's not it's not going to get us anywhere. You're just going to end up hurting a, the export economy that drives your local community and your local economy and not solving the overall core problem. And so we have deep concerns and a, a very deep desire to protect the lodging taxes uh, across the state at those local levels, whether they've been instituted at the city level or the county level, and make sure they're being used for the right purposes. So there you go. There's our four buckets, Greg. So we'll, we'll be very busy. I appreciate that. That's a it's a great overview of uh, kind of the key issues. And uh, so, Bill, I want to dive a little bit deeper uh, into some of those with you and talk about maybe some specific bills that you're seeing coming up in the legislature. Um, what are what are some of the things that you're seeing related to either those issues or others that are going to impact the industry? And what is the impact on the industry for some of these bills? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think first and foremost, when you look at the biggest negative impact, it's got to be the restrictive scheduling stuff. I, I, you know, and it's a, a lot of this stemmed out of the, the grocery workers down in, in San Francisco and other things. But really, when you look at what the benefit is to our workers and a lot of this, especially in the table service, it is the flexibility. I mean, they love the flexibility. You see, you know, shift trading and all these different things. So, you know, single moms can basically make their parent teacher conference for their kids and stuff like that and and you saw a lot of that in Seattle uh the workers there were testifying against the bill saying we love the flexibility that this industry gives us and there aren't a lot of areas where you can when you look at at servers that are with tip income or making 30 bucks an hour where you can get you know part-time 30 dollar an hour jobs where you can move your schedule around on a on a regular basis and that's why it's it's really appealing to a lot of people with with young families so they can meet those needs and so you know that they keep talking about different reasons for this bill to pass but it, it will really hurt our industry uh if this if this type of legislation moves forward the transportation package is going to be a big deal um and it's you know with the taxes there's there's some revenue shortfalls uh jason talked about the local level and at the state level uh, there really is, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's there's a lack of leadership down in Salem right now on, on many different fronts. Um, I don't think the governor's budget, when she put it out, uh, you know, outlined a plan. It just for our listeners, the governor is supposed to put forward a budget in every December, which they do. Uh, but you don't really pass that budget. It's just kind of a framework to start a discussion. Uh, and, you know, in that budget, there were a bunch of little taxes. There was a, you know, surcharge on alcohol. There was a double of the liquor licensing. There was a tax on hospitals. It didn't really put forward a, a structure that we were looking for for a debate uh, that I think could have happened. You know, in the major business groups in the state, uh, OBA and AOI are going through a merger, uh, which, you know, I personally think is a very good thing. But, you know, happening in a session, it just it's not the best timing in the world makes it more difficult yeah yeah and so you know there there's a lot of different things that are they're creating some different what i would say just leadership structure issues that are making it harder to address some of these issues probably Um, probably doesn't help that uh senate president peter courtney said even before the session started he expected this to go into special sessions into august so there really is and you know not to get into the kind of the civil process of this but i we almost need an explosion to happen down in in february uh if that happens i think everything will probably smooth out and, and you'll probably have a good budget process if they don't explode for lack of a better term until march we probably will find a way to get out in June and then come back for a special session because there's just not enough time. For our listeners yeah. out there, what do you mean when you say explode? Oh, it's in this legislative process, you, you see a lot of those uh, things where there are these big fights. Like at the, at the federal level, you had the, you know, the budget, and they didn't advance the budget in different times. There's just, you know, they are, there are politicians, and it's politics. You'll see this big 
basically fight in the media over some issue. And it could be something big, could be something small, but there's just all this pent up energy that they'll all of a sudden, you know, almost walk out of the building or shut down for a day or two, uh, which sounds petty and small, but it can actually be helpful in the long run uh, because it gives everybody a chance to refocus on on what they need to do. And they happen in every session. Um, Generally, they happen later on in sessions, but this one, this session, I think would be different. It probably should should happen earlier just to get everybody on track because they there are some major budget issues that need to happen but i think really the budget issues are going to be the big focus and some of the labor issues and so you know really stopping the predictive scheduling or restrictive scheduling um there is uh and at that point we as an organization you know played really hard to get a preemption so that local governments couldn't do their own scheduling uh, that preemption runs out in July. So if they don't extend it in this se- session, then Portland could potentially do their own scheduling ordinance. And so it, we need to make sure that that happens so we can continue to have a statewide discussion on these issues. When it comes to restrictive scheduling issues, Bill, I'm, I'm just curious for your perspective, having been doing this for so long in such a effective way, uh, we have a law that's passed in the city of Seattle, and it was opposed by the workforce, and it was opposed by the employers of the workforce. And we get asked this question often in regional meetings, and I have my own response, but I'd love to hear your take on why a local political body moves forward with restrictive scheduling in a community like Seattle when both the workers and the employers of those workers are unified in their opposition. Mm. Well, it's these. a lot of these things are basically union organizing tools. That's what they did in San Francisco. They were trying to get the the grassroots active, you know, get different um, uh, employees trying to expose to things uh, to basically make unions more attractive. Uh, I think the unions personally have overstepped their bounds on this particular issue because I don't think the workers as much uh, care about this as they do some other things uh, like benefits or direct benefits or wages. Um but they're not slowing down at all. And that's that's really kind of the frustrating because from a legislative perspective, <clears throat> excuse me, they you do hear them talk about, well, do you know how hard it is to get daycare on short term? You know, getting daycare on a short term notice. And I have kids and, uh, and I know the other participants on this call have kids or show have kids. I know it's hard, but offering somebody another hour in pay or another four hours in pay doesn't make it easier to get daycare. You know, you might be right. compensating somebody more, but it, it's, it. so if your problem is trying to get daycare in the short term, you know, we really should be sitting down having that conversation. You know, how do you make, you know, daycare operations, you know, more profitable, or you can do different things to try to get daycare, uh, more daycare options. This just does nothing to solve that problem. And so this we're just in an age of politics where you see people taking ideas and running with them because they became popular someplace else and nobody really sits down and, you know, kind of like we said with the legislature, nobody's really sitting down and saying, okay, what's the problem? How do we solve it? Uh, and it, it is frustrating, I think, for the workers and the employers for the most part. So, Bill, talk for just a minute about uh, paid family leave. As Jason mentioned earlier, you know, businesses in the last couple of sessions have been hit pretty hard with minimum wage increases, paid sick leave. Um, and now it sounds like uh, the governor is very interested in pushing forward paid family leave. Yeah, I definitely think when you're looking at the labor issues, the most likely issue to pass this session is a paid family leave. And so the the question is, what's that look like? And, and you know, we get back to the same leadership question. They've been talking about this, meaning the proponents of paid family leave. And there is there still isn't a bill out. There's not a proposal. Um, and so... You know, it, it gets back into, you know, how do you step into a leadership role if you're trying to, to address a problem? And so when you look at, you know, around this, the country, different people have been looking at, at the California model, I'll call it. And I will say that I'm, I'm not an expert on California, but, uh, you know, having an employer offer the benefit, especially in, in industries and in the workforce nowadays that, you know, it's not like when our parents worked for the same company and, and retired with a pension employees these days move around a lot. So having a, in a, a benefit like that paid for out of an employer program really probably isn't going to achieve the goal. So what California did was they almost created an unemployment system where the employee pays into it, uh, and then it becomes a portable uh, thing for them to use. And 
And really, you know, from my perspective, if you're if you're talking about just trying to cover people that are having kids and taking care of immediate family members, the expense of the program, I don't think is going to be that much. I haven't run the numbers. I'll be bluntly honest. But when you look at what Oregon FEMLA, which is the Family Medical Leave Act, uh, covers, it allows you to take care of, you know, distant cousins and, and different things. And I'm not exaggerating, but that's where the program, number one, gets expensive. It's where people can take advantage of it. It's where it can get abused. Uh, and so really, if you're trying to focus on making sure that, you know, people have time off when they have a kid or taking care of immediate family members and it becomes a portable system, I think there's an avenue there um, that's probably not that expensive. Obviously, the employers would probably still have to administer, meaning collect the money and send it on, uh, which is not always easy. But, you know, it really gets down to the same conversation I've been saying over and over. If you really say, here's the problem, can we get a group of people to sit down and address it? Uh, I think there probably is a solution, but they might just try to shove through something again where the employer pays for it all and we'll end up fighting it. And I'm not sure that's really going to provide the right benefit to the people that are in need from my perspective. Yeah, that's some of the Some of the folks that have been looking to other communities and how they've been moving forward with new regulations, for example, like restrictive scheduling coming out of San Francisco and Seattle, we would hope that as we discuss the the need for structure, as Bill attested to, in figuring out what the parameters look like for their number one labor priority, paid family leave, that they would look to some of the other states and what they have done. I mean, a great example is immediately to the south of us in California and the structure that they implemented in California for paid family leave, which has a significant employee contribution towards the paid family leave that they may need in the future. And when you think about that, that makes a lot of sense. So again, that leadership is going to be essential to creating uh, the environment where a conversation can happen and we can talk about the structure and in a way that makes sense for Oregonians. That's great. We're going to uh, take a break, step away for just a minute, and then we'll come right back. Cisco Portland thanks you from the heart of food and service for your dedication to culinary hospitality. We also appreciate our ongoing partnership with the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Together, we'll shape the future of food service in the Northwest and help operators grow. Want to be a Cisco customer? Visit www.ciscoportland.com. All right, welcome back, and thanks again for listening to Orla's Boiled Down podcast. Again, my name is Greg Astley. I'm your host. With me today is Jason Brandt, President and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, and Bill Perry, owner of Balance Point Strategies and Chief Lobbyist for Orla. Uh, so, Bill, just real quick, we wanted to talk about a couple of uh, uh, the top three bills in the legislature right now, maybe, that uh, is impacting our industry and that our members should be probably keeping an eye on along with us. Okay. Uh, first, I mean, obviously, the one that we've been bannering around uh, a lot is the restrictive scheduling, which is House Bill 2193. Uh, that is a House bill. There will be a Senate bill come out that almost looks identical to it. Um, but there will be a hearing on that. Uh, and, you know, having employees there, uh, if any of the members have somebody that, you know, they have the employees that like the flexibility, like to be able to you know, change shifts with their, some of their co-workers, having them come to testify would be very, very important there. And I would just say, you know, watch the uh, either ama- emails coming out from Orla or the website, and we'll make sure that that, that all gets posted. A um, couple other issues, I wouldn't say it's the biggest, but I, I, I would say that it's it, just to give you an idea of, of some of the things we have to face, it's House Bill 2180. Uh, 2180, uh, which is, it, it comes up every session from a wage theft standpoint. And basically what this bill says is that if you get a wage claim against you, so if any sort, any employee basically says you haven't paid them or, you know, you didn't pay me for my meal or rest breaks or different things like that, once they file the claim, it puts a lien on your property. Uh, so you can no longer access, uh, get uh, short-term loans if you do it or you know, you can't sell your property. There's a lot of different things, but it automatically puts a lien or freezes on your property, which, you know, the unions keep trying to push this, I think, from my perspective, even though they would deny it. It's basically it gives the employees leverage in a sort of a negotiation because once they file a claim, uh, it basically your 
under the screws, for lack of a better term. So it's basically you're guilty until proven yes. innocent. I was just going to say employer, it take, right? takes away the innocent until proven guilty clause yeah, that we have in our country. And one of the reasons why it's been uh, been able to be defeated in the past is just because there are you get some interesting. You know, they always say you know politics makes interesting bedfellows, <laughs> but like people like ACLU will come in against that because you know everybody deserves a right to to their day in court and and make sure that they've didn't done something wrong before they get punished. But, sure. uh, you know, you're always scared of that because it could have a, have a pretty dramatic Im- impact on our industry. Um, the other one that I would say is kind of unique to this session is uh, Senate Bill 327. And there were a couple of court cases uh, that basically when people are doing things recreational, like, well, you know, ski resorts is the number one, but you also have hiking trails, you have in mun- municipal uh governments or counties and what happened was there were a couple of lawsuits where they basically said you don't have protections anymore so what senate bill 3327 does is it gives you some protections as somebody that might have retail or recreational uh issues whether and cities are in, uh, interested in this because they obviously have parks and trails but anybody that has uh, any sort of activities on their property are going to be interested in that. So it's Senate Bill 327 to try to basically make it uh, so your liability insurance doesn't go through the roof or that you can get liability insurance too, so in many yeah. cases. And is that related to the case of the, the blind jogger that fell into the hole? There was a city worker that failed to put a piece of plywood over a hole, stepped away for a quick break, and then there was a jogger who was blind that stepped into the hole and hurt herself? I did. There was a couple of cases I would say that, you know, I'm not a lawyer, as I always say, I'm a C average <laughs> liberal arts student, but uh, um, I don't know the specific cases, but I know there's been a couple in the last couple of years. So. You forgot to add from a questionable college, too, uh, so that's, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> you not understanding edu- colleges would be relevant since you're from U of O. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we could talk about that on another yeah. podcast as well, so... Well, uh, turning back to you, Jason, I know that uh, relationships are extremely important in the building and making sure that uh, we have the opportunity to talk to folks uh, that make these kinds of decisions is important. We've been very supportive as an organization uh, this last campaign cycle of both Democrat and Republican candidates, uh, which is pretty reflective of our membership makeup. And can you tell me a little bit about uh, Orla's relationships with some of the legislators in the building? Well, sure. Yeah, it's really starts for us, I think, with kind of a, a unique uh, circumstance or unique environment that we're in as the hospitality industry to really cater and host our elected leaders as they're going through their campaign cycles. When you think about it, we're the industry that's really in the best position to assist them and the goals they're trying to accomplish, whether that's food and drink at a restaurant establishment or helping them set up a, an event facility at a, at a lodging establishment or a combination of both. Uh, so really across the board, we try to make sure that we're there of service to individuals that make the choice to step up and have courage to serve in public office. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I think it starts uh, with genuine respect for people on both sides of the aisle for their willingness to do that. And then us stepping up with, as you mentioned, a, a combination of both Republicans and Democrats that are in our makeup as, as the Orla membership and, uh, and really mobilize them to be a part of this. And another example is we recently shared with our legislators uh, a long list of various restaurants that were hosts to our elected leaders now uh, during their campaign seasons. So that, that was, I think, a, a nice step in the right direction, too, just to remind our our elected leaders that hospitality helps make it happen. That's kind of the, the way we like to say it. In addition to that, you know, Bill, uh, as our chief lobbyist, is doing a, a great job continuing to build on the relationships he's had for years. Uh, in, in my own personal case, we uh, I was setting up some meetings actually just yesterday with some of our legislators, uh, Representative Peluso and uh, Representative Bynum, meeting with both of them in the next week or two. Um, and you'll find as you're building these relationships that every legislator has different passion points, uh, things that they really care about. In the case of Representative Peluso, uh, she cares deeply about anti-sex trafficking efforts. So we'll be sitting down and talking about the efforts that Orla is taking to really combat uh, human trafficking uh, along the I-5 corridor, as well as other areas of the state. And we both are very passionate about that. So that's where we align and, and kind of meet head on. Um, for Representative Bynum, uh, issues tend to kind of revolve around healthcare, 
and she's excited to talk about some of those issues and uh, learn a little bit more, I believe, about Orla's association health plans and what we're doing in providing our uh, our members with options for what they could pass on as additional benefits to their workers if they're looking to reduce turnover in their establishment. So those are just a couple examples. And uh, I think part of our job is to make sure we remind ourselves that we have two ears and one mouth. And our job is to go in there and understand what their priorities are and then identify the resources that are available to us and then make things happen. And in both cases, those legislators that you just mentioned have connections uh, actually to the hospitality industry. I know Representative uh, Peluso's sister owns a, a bar restaurant, and uh, Representative Bynum is actually a restaurant owner as well. She has two establishments. So Right, and Representative Marsh is another meeting I have coming up as well, and that's another contact for us in the hospitality industry down in Southern Oregon. So, yeah, I mean, we are the second largest private sector industry in Oregon, so it does make sense that of the 91 people in that building that some are going to have direct connections, and, and of course, many of them do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill, anything you'd like to add to the relationships that we have with some of the legislators? Uh, yeah, it's uh, obviously uh, Senator Jackie Winters has been a restaurant owner, and she's been down there for years too. So, but uh, you do find out that uh, you know all restaurants, like many of us, have favorite rest or all legislators have favorite restaurants, and so you tend to you know they will if you can find out who. Uh, that legislator's favorite restaurant is, then you can make those connections. And and a lot of those connections help us dramatically. I would also say um, uh, Representative Barker out in Hillsborough, his uh, niece owns a restaurant and they talk quite a bit. So, you know, if, you know, members are friends with legislators, they should let us know that uh, because we can, you know, use those uh, relationships to leverage uh, future issues. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's, this industry is just made up of hospitality, obviously. And so they're, they're, the connections are there. We just need to find out where they are. Sure. And that extends both uh, down to local levels as well as up to yeah. federal levels. I know we've talked about uh uh, U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley's favorite restaurant over in Astoria, and I know uh, Congressman Kurt Schrader has a favorite restaurant over on the coast as well. So yeah. um, it's nice to know that we have those those uh, options uh, to talk to those kinds of folks as well. Um, well, getting back to some of the issues, um, Measure 97 was pretty soundly defeated this last fall. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about this revenue shortfall, $1.8 billion or $1.7, depending on who you're talking to. Mm. There's been a lot of talk about a son of 97 kind of bill coming through the legislature. Uh, can you talk at all about that, Bill? Is there a chance that something like that could pass? Uh, well, it's. I, I think it would be difficult. I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, it, it's like anything else. I, you, they. Well, let me back up. Uh, even though the Democrats have the majorities in both chambers, because of Oregon law, you have to have a supermajority get a tax pass. And, you know, without confusing with the, with all the numbers, they need at least one Republican to vote for a, a tax increase in both the House and the Senate if they want to get a tax increase passed. So if you have a large, you know, gross receipts tax, which is what 97 was, which means you just gross, you, you pay the tax based on sales, not on profitability, um, if you have something like that, I think asking a lot of the, what I would call moderate Democrats or any Republicans to vote for something like that after the public just defeated it, I think is difficult. Um, but I still think I get the sense that the house wants to try to push something like that out. So that might get into the explosion that I was talking about earlier. That might cause the explosion if they really try to go down that path. But I mean, realistically, you know, every, most of the people listening to this show, I'm assuming are business people, you're going to have to make some cuts to get some revenues. And so, you know, once again, that's going to take leadership. And so we'll have to see who the people are that come and what the cuts are they're willing to make. And that'll probably give us a better idea what kind of tax moves forward. Um, but I think that if you do have some sort of a gross receipts uh, tax, it's probably going to have to be lot smaller. And the problem with the gross receipts tax is if it's regressive because most sales taxes, uh, if you, you know, I would say it's, it's a kind of sales tax, exempts food, it exempts, you know, medical expenses, some of those things that poor people basically need on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you do a gross receipts tax, I know a lot of people said it's not going to apply to restaurants because most of them are, are small S-corps, but everything that comes through your back door, your food, your 
you know, electricity, your gas, your insurances, all those people are subject to the gross receipts tax. So everything coming through your back door is going to be taxed. Um, and so that's where they get the food in this case. So, you know, it, it will have to wait and see, but you know, I would say that I don't think a gross receipts tax is likely. And if, if it starts moving at some point in time, I think it'll be a dramatically smaller than the one that was on the ballot. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, and Bill, you've been doing this for a long time, as you mentioned, you know, almost 20 years, I think, or over 20 years. You can just call me old. You don't well, have to say uh, it's a lot quicker. That's all right. <laughs> but, but in the building and, and, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit here. How do you think this session is going to compare with say the short session in 2016 or the 2015 or, you know, recent years? Uh, well, it's, you know, I, I think the thing that I, I touched on in the beginning is the, uh, is the biggest factor, which is management. It, it just the overall management on different, and I'm not going to sit there and point to one thing over there. Like I said, I, you know, the two ones that I touched, touched on with the governor's office and somewhat in the business community. But I mean, the, the management of bringing people together, uh, somebody needing to do it and then somebody needed to put a, a proposal on the table, uh, is something that just is not happening this session. Um, even, I mean, you take the, the small example of what we talked about with the, uh, the paid family leave is, you know, we in this little group decided, you know, here's the objective, here's the different scenarios that, you know, can kind of set the framework. Uh, those are the conversations that need to be happening on a tax level or, you know, labor issues. You need to say, what is the fundamental problem? What are the things we need to try to achieve that problem? And who are the best people to put in the room to achieve that problem? Uh, most of us have served on boards and if you put 90 people in a room to try to discuss and come to a conclusion on an issue, it's not going to be likely, but what you need to do is, is get, you know, six to seven people that are influencers and understand the problem to get in a room. And, and, uh, you know, they've always said, you know, you look at workers comp, it was a Mahonio hall group. Mahonio hall is the governor's mansion in Oregon for, uh, lack of a, a better term. It's probably not a mansion, but, uh, that's what they always, right. uh, but they did that on workers comp years ago. They did that on the so-called grand bargain a few years ago when Kitzhaber did. So, I mean, there's going to have to be some group pulled together, you know, whether it's Mahoney Hall or somebody else, but there's someplace else, but that needs to happen. Uh, and it's just, it doesn't seem like this session is, is setting up to where that's going to happen in the near future. So clearly, communicating to those uh, elected leaders, uh, I guess we can call them leaders at this point, um, is going to be important and getting our members involved is going to be important. So Jason, how can people get involved if they're listening to this podcast? If, you know, if they're a member of Orla, uh, what can they do to, to help either pass or kill some of the bills that we've been talking about? They can embrace a commitment to spontaneity. What do I mean by that? Uh, Everyone out there that's listening to this, once an issue hits the fan and we have a date and a time where we need to take action together, everyone that's listening to this is going to have some type of conflict. So it's going to come down to rearranging your schedule and making it a priority to make a difference. If you're willing to do that, then we have a chance. If we're going to decide that each of us as individuals can't make a difference and so we're going to stick with our original schedules and not make a commitment to spontaneity when that date and time comes out, then we're going to lose. It's as simple as that. Well, I know as much as they love seeing Bill uh, testify and, and see him in the building and you and I uh, now as a presence for Orla there, uh, it really does make a difference, I think, to our legislators and to the elected officials when an operator can show up and talk about their own personal story. Would you agree? Yes, but I do like to make sure that we temper expectations because we have had uh, some of our members and industry partners show up and testify. Uh, the last short session comes to mind, and they didn't feel like that commitment of time and energy was well received by the committee members. And that's an example of how politics works sometimes, where people have already made up their minds before the committee meeting and public hearing actually takes place. Or maybe they didn't want to make up their mind, but they were pressured by leadership to already have made their mind up, and they, their votes already been counted a certain way. So even if they were willing to be influenced by 
real world testifiers. They didn't they don't really have the luxury or flexibility to change their vote. So those are realities. So we have to make sure people realize that public hearing participation is a part of the solution. Another part of the solution is uh, those folks that are showing up at our day at the Capitol, and that's coming up on Tuesday, February 28th, and it's full. So we don't need any more participants for that. That's great. We're going to have two conference rooms full of both restaurant and lodging members talking to our legislators. So hats off to our members there. Also, we have this still uh, open Taste Organ event that evening from 5 to 7 on February 28th. That's something that we would encourage everyone to show up to. And so some of this is planting the seed and making sure that our legislators know that you're accessible as a business owner. Whether you're a lodging member or a restaurant member, you are interested in that legislator calling you. And give them your cell phone number. Let them text you. Uh, Don't be afraid to have an open relationship. Uh, The more we can expand our universe in that regard, the stronger we're going to be. And frankly, we have so we have unlimited potential as far as I'm concerned. We are we are large and all-encompassing as an industry. Everything we do touches the lives of every Oregonian. I mean, it's it's a pretty massive responsibility when you think about it. And so we really have to do our best to make sure that we're expanding that responsibility to everyone that's in the industry and making sure that our legislators feel connected to that. Yes. I was just going to add to that uh, the uh, open hypocrisy of this whole scheduling stuff as to Jason's first point is if you go down to the legislature right now, they're only scheduling a week out in advance. So they want business owners <laughs> to schedule two weeks out. But Right. Uh, Good point. Um, but And it's funny. We, we will get different things on, on labor issues where they've set a date for a labor issue a long time out, and they let the advocates on the other side of us build a um, – a, a list of people to come in and actually usually how we find out about uh, some of these hearings is because somebody from the union side or the, the other side posts it on Facebook and we usually find out before it's printed through that. But, you know, and, and Jason kind of touched this on before. So you, you have to come down because they always jokingly say that, you know, we need real people like the, the people of us that lobbyists and everything aren't real people, right. but they want real people in the building. But, you know, it, it is a touch point. And, you know, if you are willing to meet with legislators in the interim, invite them to your restaurant, invite them to your hotel, you know, walk them through your business, you know, build a relationship so that when you do come down to that hearing and you're one of the people coming to testify, if they know you and know your business, and then when you make your pitch or tell your story, they have a visual, and that visual is anything you've ever done. You know that once you can visualize something when they describe it in your mind, it makes your argument so much more effective. So, you know, you're not going to have time to build that relationship now, but it's got to start at some point. So it's great if you can start it during the session, then invite them down after session's over so they can come to your place of business and start to build that relationship with them. And that that's how we become a stronghold in this uh, political realities of the world. You know, Bill's point is really well taken, and I think we have to challenge ourselves here on the Orla staff actually to to step up once the session's over. Uh, to some degree, we can be successful in the short term in encouraging people, I think, through questions like yours, Greg, to get more engaged now. The reality is these legislators are really, really busy, so it's going to be very hard to start a relationship from scratch in this environment. So to Bill's point, we have to get, I think, a lot more diligent about the off-season. And Bill's uh, given us great advice here. I think once it, once it comes down to the summer and the fall uh, time frame of the year, we need to fully utilize our resources and, and hold very consistent, comprehensive roundtable discussions across the state and make sure that our legislators feel like a wanted and respected partner in all of those meetings. Mm-hmm. We have to do that. That's going to have to be a priority. And no time like the present. We are busy and we have to stay on point with a laser-like focus on the legislative issues. Having said that, we can't lose sight of the need to plan and prepare for the opportunities once the session's over. Sure. There's a short term and a long term here, I think, that we need to look at. So, And we're not talking rentals this time. No, we're not talking rentals. That's right. So. 
Well, before we wrap things up, um, I do want to let uh, our Orla members know that um, there is another opportunity to get involved. Um, and that's coming up on March 13th at Bridgeport Brewing from 4 to 6 p.m. Um, we are going to be partnering with Fisher Phillips. Um, we've got Rich Menegello, who has been a guest on our podcast here before, and Chris Moorhead, who are going to be discussing the Trump administration and how that could impact your hospitality workplace. Um, although it's tough to predict the future most of the time, uh, President Trump's statements and appointments of the business leaders into the prominent positions are providing some pretty strong clues as to what changes may lie ahead for hospitality employers, both large and small. So again, uh, March 13th, Bridgeport Brewing uh, in Portland from 4 to 6 p.m. Orla members get $10 off the regular registration, and you can visit OregonRLA.org backslash events for more information. Um, We'd like to see you there. So uh, once again, my guest today, Jason Brandt, President and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. He can be reached at jbrandt at oregonrla.org. And Bill Perry, owner of Balance Point Strategies, can be reached at balancepointstrategies.com. Gentlemen, again, I want to thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, It's always great to see you and hear from you. I know our members appreciate it as well. And uh, for anyone wanting to get in touch with the show here, you can reach us at info at oregonrla.org, uh, on the web at oregonrla.org, or Twitter, we're at Orla Boiled Down. Any final thoughts as we, uh, as we wrap up, Jason? Just thank you for the opportunity. And please, for those of you listening out there, share this with your colleagues and industry partners. It's really important that we find new and innovative ways to get you the communication and intelligence you're looking for from the industry and bill thanks for the opportunity i hope everybody can stay dry (laughs) well once again i'm your host greg astley and this has been your orla boiled down podcast thanks for listening the associates of cisco portland know that life's celebrations bring the best meals wonderful moments of fun family and food Cisco Trucks deliver flavor and culinary adventure to food service locations throughout Oregon and Southwest Washington. Want to become a Cisco customer? Visit www.ciscoportland.com.